Hi, this is Tiffany, and you're listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The New Scene. I am your host, Keith, and we're back with a brand new episode. And this is a great one. On the show today, we've got Billy Werner of Seisha. Seisha is back. They've played some reunion gigs. They've got more coming up, and we cover it all in this conversation. We talk about Seisha. We talk about growing up in New York City, crazy stuff going on at shows in New York City. We talk about the history of Seisha. We talk about Hot Cross. We talk about Billy's work in electronic music in that scene. We talk about the Seisha reunion. We cover it all. And Billy is a really interesting guy. You're going to want to hear this whole thing. It's coming up momentarily. But before that, here's how you can support the new scene. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. Subscribe to our YouTube channels. We've got a main channel with full episodes. We've got a clips channel with highlights from our favorite episodes. And I've got a gaming channel, which I update periodically. Give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Open up your Apple Podcasts app, hit the five-star button, and write a review. If you leave a nice review, I'll read it on the show. We've got shirts at Death Wish Inc. Head over there to pick one up. We've got a long sleeve. We've got short sleeve options as well. Also, don't forget to support iodine recordings once again i'm going to tell you jerome's dream is headlining zbr fest may 6th and 7th in chicago head to zbrfest.com for more info get tickets it's gonna sell out you're gonna miss out and if you miss out on jerome's dream you're gonna be miserable trust me and i'm telling you for the last time sign up for the iodine recordings email list there's big news coming and you will get this news first if you sign up for the email list. And look, don't come crying to me when you miss out on all this exciting stuff that's happening. Oh, Keith, you didn't tell us. We missed out. We can't get our hands on this and that. I warned you. I warned you to sign up for the email list. Do it. And you will get the latest and greatest iodine updates first. For more information, head to their website at iodinerecords.com or the Instagram at iodine recordings. And don't forget to support this month's sponsor, Bridge Nine Records. Now, when you think hardcore, what do you think? Cargo shorts, basketball jerseys, guys calling each other herbs for some reason. What is that? You only hear that in the hardcore scene. You're an herb. You're an, it's so, so stupid. No, you don't think of any of that. You think of Bridge Nine Records, first and foremost. I mean, take a look at the list of bands on Bridge Nine. American Nightmare, Burn, Buried Alive, War on Women, Terror, Sick of It All, No Warning. The list goes on and on and on. There's only one Bridge Nine, and there's only one place you can get their Silver Series pressings of some of their most classic records. That's at their new record store at 282 Rand Tool Street in Beverly, Massachusetts. 
stop by the record store, pick up some records. They've got Bridge Nine stuff. They've got a whole bunch of other stuff. You may even see Chris Wren himself, and you can ask him what his favorite episode of the new scene is, and he will say his episode. I mean, why wouldn't he? For more information, head to bridgethenumber9.com, or you can check them out on Instagram at bridge9. That's bridge, N-I-N-E. Okay. So listen, check back in with me in segment three. I just turned 41 this weekend. I had a very nice birthday. I'll go into detail about that. And I also have some very sad news. I can't believe this, but I'm going to be doing another memorial on the show. Uh, My friend TJ DeBloy, who was the original drummer of A Life Once Lost, Halfway to Holland, Like Lions, many other bands, he has passed away. And uh, again, very unexpected. That's two friends gone in a matter of weeks, and I will pay tribute to TJ this week, and that's coming up in segment three. But right now, we are going to speak to Billy Werner of Seisha and Hot Cross. Enjoy. We are here now with Billy Werner. Billy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yes, Billy, it is wonderful to have you here. You know, throughout your life, you've created a lot of great music, and you've had a very busy year with the return of Seisha playing live shows, and we're going to cover all of that and more. But Billy, first let me ask you, how are you doing today? I am great. I am on my... Second full day of vacation um, from my job while my son is on winter break, and it's really nice to not be working. <laughs> so I'm I'm doing as as well as can be imagined right now. Your vacation has already started. My vacation has already started. I do not touch my laptop again until the first. I guess right after New Year's, January fourth, whatever that first day is. Back. So oh, I'm so jealous. Mine doesn't start until Friday. And usually I just cruise into vacation, you know, and a year slow, but they've crammed so much stuff 
into work this year. I flew to St. Louis last week. I got to do something else in Murray Hill in New York City tomorrow. So they're taking me right up to the very last second this year. Yeah, man, you are busy. You are busy. But at the end, the end is in sight. The, the, the light at the end of the tunnel is getting brighter and brighter. So I'm, I'm pulling for you. You're going to make it. I, I have to. Yeah. I just have to. <laughs> Where are you living these days? I live right outside Philadelphia in an area called Elkins Park. I can I can walk to the city line from from my door. It's it's uh it's the low 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 suburbs. Um, it's about twenty minute train ride into downtown Philadelphia, and about a twenty five minute drive if traffic conditions are perfect, which they never are. Um, but I <laughs> essentially essentially in the Philly area, uh, been in this particular area since 2014. I've been, uh, and then before that I lived in Philadelphia starting in 06. Um, so, so I've been, you know, we're, we're nearing the 20 year mark that I've been in Philadelphia, which is ab- absolutely mind boggling to think about, but we're, we're getting there. Amazing. I did the opposite of you. I grew up in the Philadelphia area and then moved to New York City mm. but you started here and then went down there yes that that is that is true yeah i grew up uh, i was a native new yorker um born and raised in queens in a sort of flushing bayside whitestone sort of triangle um and then uh lived in manhattan for a stint and brooklyn and just kind of moved around until finally um you know the familiar story you know i was priced out uh, of the city basically i had really good uh unheard of type of luck with apartments up until i moved to philly and that was pretty much why i moved here was just the expense of New York and, and Hot Cross was sort of based out of here. And I was in a, a, a relationship at the time with someone that lived in Philadelphia. So it just didn't make any sense to sort of stay in New York and struggle and commute multiple times a week to Philly for practice and all that stuff. So 06 was sort of the, the turning point in my life. And, and I've, I've been in Phil- the Philadelphia area ever since. Yeah, I love it. I miss it a lot. I think about moving back but I don't know. It's just a thought. I'm like, it's not time yet. Like when it was time to move yeah. up here, I knew it was time. Oh, yeah. So I, I, yeah. I tell myself, if it's time to move down there, you'll know. I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. I think, um, you know, there's a phrase. There's a phrase. Uh, man plans, God laughs, right? And I think that <laughs> it, it's. I think this is totally one of those things. It's like you know when it's time to go, and that was sort of what happened with with me. It was just like all the things sort of lined up and were pointing in the direction of, of just getting out of New York and, and, you know, this was the right spot. So yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I think that with these sort of things, unless you're specifically pulled in a, in a, in a direction because of a thing like a job or, or a relationship or, or, or something else that's different. But if it's kind of like, you know, my time is nearing an end, you, you, you sort of get a, a sense of those things, I think. So yeah, I, I would agree with that. Plus raising a family uh, you can't do it up here unless you're rich. <laughs> yeah, I, I think. No doubt. I don't, yeah. I mean, you're not going to own anything. That's for sure. Yeah. We. Yeah. The, the, I will say that the the. I don't know that my life would be where it is. Right. Uh, yeah. Just non music stuff. Just life in general. If I didn't make it down here, it was just sort of. I, I didn't. Re- you know. You don't realize until all these th- those things happen. But I'm relieved that I made it here because I think. I, I sort of li- like the the track I'm I'm on being in this area. So, um, but yeah, you don't you don't know until you actually do it, right? So it's it would be it would be very difficult for me to sort of live 
and I don't, we don't by by no means do we live an extravagant lifestyle, but we we appreciate the lifestyle we're able to have here, as opposed to what it would be like if we if we were not here. Exactly, you can't walk out the door in New York City without spending one hundred dollars. It is impossible. <laughs> I agree. I I literally say the same thing to to people when um you know we talk about visiting. It's like as soon as you get through the tunnel, it's like you know you've already spent about forty bucks just in gas and tolls and. <laughs> You get a meal and that you're done, right? It's it's all over. So uh, yeah, that, that's that's not an exaggeration for those of you listening from remote places. So talk about growing up in New York City. I'm fascinated by people who grew up in New York City and like started going to shows here. Yeah, you know, it just must have been a visceral experience. Talk about your experience and early bands and shows that grabbed you. Yeah, so I was. Um, I was in a very musical household. Uh, my parents loved records. My dad is, was a big record head back in the day and, um, you know, had a lot of albums and collected 45s and just, you know, he was a collector in general. And I, I've sort of inherited that gene where, you know, I have a, an enormous music collection and it sort of means the world to me. Um, I don't really have many possessions other than sort of music related possessions, be it, you know, records or, um, you know, musical equipment, instruments and such. And it's always been that way. I just sort of never knew any other way. My mom, um, was a singer and played the piano and, um, was really intent on starting me on music lessons at a very young age. So she would sort of teach me to sing and how to use my voice. And, um, at the same time, she, um, you know, got me some piano lessons when I was sort of way too young to appreciate them. And I, I by that, I mean like third, fourth grade, um, once a week, a, a piano teacher would come. We had like a little organ in the house and my the piano teacher would come and, um, I would, you know, uh, struggle through, you know, sort of basic, you know, major scales and, and all that kind of stuff. And, um, it, at the time I, I didn't feel like I got much out of it, but it really gave me a foundation of just like how to read music, like what, a, a chord is and, and all that kind of stuff, which was really important because it stuck, right? It, it stuck and it got me to, you know, later on in life when I started actually playing instruments and, and stuff. But first and foremost, I grew up in a musical household. Um, you know, my parents had the typical boomer sort of music collection, Beatles, Motown, um, all that sort of stuff that, um, you know, sort of shaped my childhood because um, it was all I heard. Um, and then things started to shift in the early to mid eighties when I was really young, all of a sudden um, rap music and, and hip hop sort of really captured the imagination of people in New York. And it, uh, when I started to hear it on the radio, I was immediately just fascinated with just beats and storytelling over beats. I was, I, it sounded to me, it sounded like music from another planet, just sort of based on, you know, I didn't have the wherewithal to, to sort of understand the through lines to, hip hop to soul music, soul music to rock music, um, rock music and soul music to the blues. You know, I, I didn't have, you know, obviously I wasn't really concerned with musicology at that time in my life, but hip hop was the first thing that I sort of felt like w was a thing that was mine, like early rap music, LL Cool J, the Fat Boys, Run DMC, anything you would hear, you know, the, the classics, the canon, right? Like the, 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 the sort of the old guard, um, all that stuff really captured my imagination and, and and I was making tapes of Chuck chill out and red alert on Friday and Saturday night. You know, I remember watching the Mets in the world series in 86 and like in the meantime, while I was watching on TV with my parents, I had headphones on and a little radio and I was recording, you know, Chuck chill out uh, his show on Friday night on, on, I think he was on kiss FM. 
Um, so, so that was the first, I bring that up because that was really the first kind of music that really sort of, I felt like was my own, right? It wasn't something that I learned about from my parents. It was like this thing that they just didn't understand and didn't want to hear about, but it was something that really just took hold in my imagination. Um, so that, that was really the first thing that kind of gave me the, the bug of, all right, like I'm going to start buying music for myself. Like I'm going to, you know, I can't buy it for myself, but I'm going to start telling my parents, like, I want to buy this cassette. I want this. I want to listen to this. And that's sort of where it all, where it all started. Yeah. You know, rap music. I was at the age where like Nirvana and the whole alternative boom that really got me into music and my own taste. Yeah. All that stuff. Hip hop too. Like there was a, there was an awesome stuff happening in hip hop and just, I loved the music, but also as a white kid growing up in an all-white suburb, like from older people, you're indoctrinated with like, oh, these people are dangerous. They're criminals. This music is bad. And that just makes you want to listen to it even more. So it was like this really dangerous, like forbidden thing, which gave it appeal in addition to the music. Yeah, it it was just something that was not familiar. It was was not – it was – it was unfamiliar in in you know my in the culture that I was raised in, but it was so distinctly right. New York. As much as it wasn't like cultural with regard to my background, I felt part of just the culture because I was in New York City. It was like the epicenter. Like we, you know, there was it was like the only game in town from what we knew. There was no internet. You know, there was rap happening in other places, but New York was really the the central focus, right? Um, and so you just felt when you were living there and growing up around it, it just felt like it was just part of your environment as well, which was also really special. Um, and then I got into sort of aggressive music later on. I just sort of happened upon metal through like an older brother of a friend, you know, it's one of those things, you know, you hear about it and I'm totally one of those kids, right? I grew up in the eighties and like super into rap music and all this stuff. And, and I had this friend that lived on the block, um, and his his older brother, he had one older brother that was into rap, and he had an other older brother who was into metal. And so it was kind of like when I was hanging out at this kid's house, who was my age, who didn't care anything about music, I gravitated to his older brothers because I wanted to know what they were up to, what they were listening to and why and what it was. And um, in 86, 87, um, it was, maybe it was more like 87, 88, I was like 10 or 11 years old. You know, the metal older brother made me uh, uh, two tapes. One had um, Metallica Ride the Lightning and Judas Priest Defenders of the Faith on A and B. And then the other tape had Iron Maiden's Killers and Peace of Mind on A and B. And then I was just like, okay, similar to hip hop, it was like, this sounds dangerous to me. It's different. It doesn't sound like anything else. My parents aren't into it. You know, my parents think it's noise. So this is awesome. I'm going to. I'm going to look at this stuff now. And I got really into metal. And th- and at that time, so this is pre-Nirvana, right? This is like, I think a lot of folks that are listening to this don't understand like what the music world looked like in real time, like before Nirvana hit. There was, there was alternative music, but it wasn't like everything, right? Like the alternative became the mainstream when Nirvana hit. Before that, it was glam metal and like, you had Poison and Guns N' Roses and Cinderella and Rat and, you know, Wasp and all these really sort of just cartoonishly, you know, on one hand, like just, uh, you know, 
going to the going to the mat in in support of their masculinity and like how many like groupies they're you know with but at the same time like wearing like makeup and really sort of doing gender bending stuff which even at the time i noticed was like this is an interesting dynamic i don't really understand like what's happening here but like it's interesting to me that these guys try to come off as in like this hyper masculine way and meanwhile, you know, it's almost like they're, you know, they're wearing like lipstick and eyeliner and that just doesn't click with me. But I love the aggressive music and like from a cultural standpoint, I just want to hear guitars and dudes screaming and like double kick drums and like, you know, <laughs> plate reverb on drums and all that nonsense. And um, and so I was just really got carried away with metal and um, metal then led to punk and that, that was it. Uh, my, I heard the bad brains on college radio and I never looked back. Life changed like immediately. It's always fascinating to hear about music before alternative was marketed to the world, you know, because like I was in fourth grade when all of that hit. So I almost don't remember it. So it's just crazy to think about this world without the influence of Nirvana and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam being shoved down your throat. And it's like, no, we're like, we're all doing this thing now. It, it was crazy. It was crazy in the sense that, you know, my exposure to like the bad brains was when quickness came out, which I guess was 88, 89. So I was, I was a baby, you know, I was 11, 12 years old. Um, and I heard the messenger by bad brains and I was like, these guys are fast. They sound completely fucking unhinged. And I don't care what metal I'm listening to. If it's not Slayer or creator, like this just blows it out of the water. Like, I don't even understand what I'm hearing right now. I, I did not, I, whatever the sort of glam rock stuff or power metal shit that I was listening to at the time, just went right in the bin and I, I it from that moment on i was just like it's got to be fast it's got to be crazy sounding it's got to sound scary um and it's got to be telling me something that i don't know and at that time that was i think nirvana hit in like 90 so it was like i had this one-two punch of like okay i've been i've been understanding what hardcore is for a couple of years i sort of understand what new york hardcore is in, in a very superficial way like it's incredibly intimidating i'm too young to get to a show but i know that this stuff happens weekly because i listen to college radio and i look at the village voice and i know like what shows are happening um uh but you know it it's it's something that feels like completely out of out of you know from outer space and then all of a sudden you know i'm looking at mtv one day and like i see when Smells Like Teen Spirit was released, I, and I don't know if other folks remember this, but there was a point where MTV was playing that video like at the top of the hour, every hour. Like it, it wasn't like this thing where it like picked up steam over time. It was like it came out, and then it was all you heard. And it lit. It was like it was like as if it, it's it's like what wiped out the dinosaurs. It was like an asteroid <laughs> hitting the Earth, and then it left nothing. Th there was nothing left in its wake all that was left in its wake was like sonic youth sound garden like all the good shit right it was it was like the big cleansing of the world and then all of a sudden you had bands at the time which as hardcore kids we were like oh that's really mainstream but now you look back and you're like there's no sound garden now like sound garden was wicked like you know so it's all relative but 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 the point being the the way we understand understand mainstream music now, and the way we understand mainstream, the way we understood mainstream music before Nirvana, were were suit to they were they are such different things, 
it, it's hard to even describe unless you sort of live through it and you can look back and see the sea change. Like it is not hyperbolic when you see these documentaries on MTV and VH1 and Vice about like the nineties, like that Nirvana shit hit overnight. And it really was like the big bang. It was like the nine 11 of music. It was that like, like nothing, the world was just not the same after that. It's interesting to hear that from you because, you know, I, I go back and watch all of that stuff and I don't remember all of it firsthand. So I'm like, wait, was it really that big? But I guess it was, it was, it was seismic. It was yeah. seismic. Like nothing, they, you know, the, all these other bands, like, like you have to understand, like bands like poison were like selling out arenas. Like now they play yeah. like casinos, but yeah, at that time, like a poison tour would go, you know, would probably in Philadelphia would probably go through like veteran stadium, you know, it would be, or it would be at the, at, at the spectrum or something. You have to understand like when the Nirvana bomb hit, like their careers just went kablooey. Like they were done. All those bands were just done. It was literally yeah. overnight. It was like they were chart toppers one day and then they were like extinct the next day. <laughs> and it was, and it, it was, it was incredible. Like I look back on it now and I'm like, I don't really, I can't think of anything else like that. Like maybe the Neptunes in the early two thousands, because there was a time where those, and I know this is like a, a, a complete, like, you know, that meme of like the guy, like <laughs> screeching over to get off the egg, the exit ramp. Like, I understand <laughs> that like, this is like the last thing you expected to hear, but like, similarly, the Neptunes, um, there was a time in the early aughts, probably in like 2000, 2001, where like, out of the top 20, they produced 14 tr- tunes or something. like. I mean, something just dumb like that. And like, that was this, the next time I sort of saw something that was, that was sort of that seismic that just kind of took, just captured everybody's imagination. It was like those guys, they had like a Motown type track record in the early 2000s. But before that, like that Nirvana stuff was just, I mean, the whole grunge thing was like, it was so huge and so fast. It, it, it really just changed anyone's perception of like what was possible in mainstream music, what mainstream music could sound like. You know, we, Smells Like Teen Spirit is like a cool classic rock song now. But at the time it was like, this dude's on the radio screaming. I love it. Like, where has this been? Like, you know? This dude is just going for it. Like these dudes can't play like Guns N' Roses, but they are tight as hell, and it's ten times more powerful. Like, what is this? And that's just how it went. It was, it was, it was inspiring and insane all at the same time. Amazing. When did you decide you wanted to start performing? Um, early on, I used to watching those metal videos. I used to take um my. my parents love this but i used to take like the pillows on their bed and a pair of drumsticks and like surround myself with these pillows and do it like a facsimile drum set and make believe i was playing drums and like while i was watching like poison and cinderella videos and rat and shit like that like i would make believe i was playing drums like they did on the video um and then i started actually re- playing drums for real in uh in junior high school, uh, Mr. Gazzo was my band teacher and the dude just like, he was a drummer and he saw something in me and he just assigned me to the drums in the school band. And during lunchtime, he would let me come to the band room and just teach myself how to play the drums. And I would just sit in there and play. And um, he he was really, uh, he was a huge, a huge factor in my life at that time. Because again, he sort of saw something in me musical that I didn't, I thought was there, but didn't really recognize in such explicit terms. And then from then then on, I was playing the drums. My uncle 
my uncle Ron is a is an incredible drummer, like virtuoso level drummer, and he basically gifted me his kit at the time. And I learned to play. I taught myself. I played along with music I liked and taught myself how to play the drums. And then in high school, I, you know, that's really when I started going to hardcore shows, you know, in 92, 93. Um, and with kids in my high school that were into hardcore, I started playing with them. And I was in my first band playing the drums in probably 90, 93, 1993. Nice. What, what kind of bands are you seeing at the time? What venues? I'm curious. So CBGB's just um, CBGB's had stopped doing hardcore matinees um, for a while because of violence in like the late '80s, early '90s. They 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 shows moved to same as the Pyramid on Avenue A, the Pyramid Club. So they so um, you know when you look back at the there's all these like books coming out with vintage flyers and photos, and you see that at some point all these shows start happening at the Pyramid. Um, and and that's when CBGB's had stopped doing shows because of violence. When I went to my first CB shows. I want to say it was like late 92, early 93. They had just started doing shows again. Um, in my experience, you know, they were still pretty violent. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I don't know if the break really solved any problems, but um, nonetheless, I, I went to my first CB show. I think it was Agnostic Front and Sheer Terror and Marauder. Um, so it was, you know, a, a show with probably lots of bad behavior. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, that really, you know, scared the shit out of me, but I was addicted. And so I would go to CB's, um, and, and at the time I was just sort of seeing like the New York hardcore, like milieu, you know, the, the agnostic fronts, the sheer terror, Marauder, dark side, um, all the bands on wreckage records, you know, um, from long Island, mind over matter, um, still suit, uh, you know, yup aside, uh, doggy dog. Uh, so the, the shows were sort of at, at CBGB's. And on Friday nights, we would go to a place called the Bond Street Cafe. That was sort of like where I went to the most because they had shows weekly every Friday. Um, And that's where my friends were going. So I I typically went with them on a Friday night. We'd go to Bond Street Cafe. The shows would start at six. And sometimes you'd see like Orange 9mm. You'd see Still Suit, Shift, you know, all those sort of early 90s, like New York City bands that were really active, um, sort of all played. You know, a lot of times it was, you see the same bands, Bad Trip played a lot. Um, yeah, it, it was just sort of a, an incubator for me as I was kind of getting my footing in the scene and, and meeting people and, you know, becoming friends with some folks and avoiding others and just like, tr- just getting a sort of a lay of the land. Like I tried to stay quiet and, and hide and not be noticed just so I could observe and sort of take it all in. Yeah. Um, and then later on, I would say when I got older, I would say by 94, um, I was going to ABC no Rio regularly and, um, volunteering at food, not bombs, 94, 95. I started NYU in 95. And, um, that's when I started meeting a lot of people and getting, way more involved. I started volunteering with the Hardcore Collective at ABC. Um, again, I was do- already doing Food Not Bombs. I was there kind of like every Saturday. And that that was really where my politics were shaped and my whole approach to music and sort of understanding what DIY was and understanding that the personal is sort of the political. And if it's not, it should be. And that, you know, this is a music for, this is a music of struggle. Um, and this is a music that has a special place of it, it creates space for uh, marginalized voices and marginalized ideas. And it 
sort of embrace this idea of, of, of a better world being possible, but that to get to that better world, there was a struggle and there was a fight. And those of us that were privileged um, and working within this world had sort of an obligation and a responsibility to uplift those who, 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 who were not. And I learned that through Food Not Bombs. I learned that from volunteering there. I learned that from reading lyric sheets and talking to bands and just sort of understanding punk's place in the world and, and the possibilities that come with it. And it really, that really shaped, um, beyond the New York hardcore stuff and sort of the sonics of it and just the enjoyment of aggressive music, um, that really got me thinking about, well, the aggressive music part is not really enough, right? There needs to be something more. This needs to be sort of moving the needle. And as a young idealist surrounded by activists and other idealists, you know, you, you, you decide you're going to figure out how to change the world. And that's a beautiful thing. That's an amazing thing. And so ABC Norea was really where I sort of got a political footing um, and really sort of understand like where, where punk could reside, you know, it's the limits of your imagination. Don't, don't have to sort of define what it is. Like it's, it's, it's all that and more it's the, you know, it's the skinhead dudes at CBGB's, it's the crusty guys at ABC, but it's also like society at large, you know, that, um, uh, you know, sort of marginalizes us and marginalizes the, the, these kind of ethics and um, makes us carve out a space, right. And scream to be heard. And it all just sort of clicked at that moment. And then I sort of knew that's where I needed to be. Like that's, that was the part of the community, the part of the punk world that I needed to be in was one that imagined a better world that helped work toward one, and d- sort of, you know, engaged in sort of d- direct action in terms of, you know, really informing people about what was out there and what they could get involved in, how they could help with just different issues, no matter what those were. Um, that was really where I, that, that, that was really where it all started. And, and I haven't really looked back since, uh, you know, I haven't been in bands my whole life consistently, but I've lived with that, those ethics, um, whether I was playing music or not. And, you know, that, that time and that place, um, what was immeasurably important, um, to my life. And, and I'm very grateful that I got to experience it the way I did. Yeah. I like that. I, uh, I didn't even think about all that stuff before I got into hardcore and the various subgenres. you know, the, that was the first time I heard about veganism or vegetarianism or like, anti-racism and just like all the important foundational stuff that you learn or hopefully learn when you get involved with this music. And I don't know, I, I embraced that, but I also pushed against some of it for some reason. I, it used to make me angry when people like spoke out against something. I, I guess I felt like I was being lectured to, this is when I was like really young, but I eventually got over all that and, and just embraced everything. And it sounds like you found your footing big time at ABC No Rio and everything going on there. Talk about uh, the beginning of Seisha. Uh, did you, did you meet the people at ABC No Rio? Like how, when does that come about? Yeah. So that, that, um, so I started NY, I was at NYU from 95 to 99. So um, Seisha existed 97 and 99. So when I first got to NYU, um, I was, I had already been going to shows cause I started in high school um, and I already knew Adam Marino who is the guitar player, one of the guitar players in Seisha, um, and bass and bass player. Um, he, uh, we knew each other from Queens. We worked across the street from each other and went to shows together. And 
we were sort of like it was like literally it was like Henry and Ian like working in Haagen Dazs like he worked at Haagen Dazs and I worked at Boston Market across the street and we would like trade food and and hang out and we would go skate and we would go to shows and we just hung out a ton and had talked about playing music together because we were going to the same shows and knew that a lot of the same people and all that kind of stuff. But like the opportunity didn't really sort of present itself until I was at NYU and meeting other people. And so, uh, as I was saying, I, I listened to a lot of college radio and, and where I first heard hardcore was on WNYU's crucial chaos show, which was this, and I think it's still going on, but it's a, th- it was a Thursday night sort of radio show, um, from 10 to midnight, I believe it was, or nine to 11. It was, it was a two hour show. And, um, it was hosted by this woman's spermicide, like it, and then I got to NYU and it was a totally different group of people that was, that were hosting it. But I, I really needed to get to the radio station. Like my, my goal when I first got to NYU was, all right, I got to get to WNYU. I got to hang out at Crucial Chaos. I got to see who's hosting it. I got to know those people because there's going to be some sort of network of punks there that, I'm going to get tapped into. Um, and at the very least, it'll probably be people that I see at shows. So let me go down there and see what's up and, and see who I can meet. And the show was hosted by Rachel Rosen um, and this guy, Dave, Hardcore Dave. Rachel ended up playing an indecision later on. Um, and w- it, it was, both of them were just lovely and really welcoming and really enjoyed hanging out with, with both of them um, and getting to know people. And through that, through the radio show, I met Jamie Bihar and I met Steve Roche and I met, uh, I met Greg Drudy just go from going to classes and um, having a run in with him over Krishna beads. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and so I, I got to know those guys just from sort of just hanging out at the places where I knew there would be punks. And they were the folks that I sort of met first. Uh, and it was, all, it was pretty much all at the radio. Sh- the, the radio station was sort of like a, a, like a little ecosystem of, of punks. And, you know, you had bands coming in to play live. So you would meet them as they come, came in. And um, it was really a great place to sort of get to know people in the scene that were doing something that were active and um, that were, you know, musicians or, you know, aspiring musicians. And so the possibilities of starting a band at NYU, that was a really great place to get it done because, you know, obviously people were there for music uh, already. And, and, you know, if they're at that radio show, you know, they have the same interest in music and the same, um, you know, specific stuff that, that, that you, you could share with them. So, so that was like my first stop. And, and that's where I met all the Seisha guys and, um, I had already had lyrics and um, we sort of got going um, and, 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 but, but it was all through, through college. Uh, it was all at NYU. How do you end up being vocalist? Cause you were drumming before, right? Yeah. I, so part of it was that I couldn't, where I was living at the time I was living with my dad and we were in an apartment and um, it was not, con- I could not have a drum set there cause we were living upstairs. So, so being able to play drums on my own was, I couldn't practice unless I was at a rehearsal studio in New York. And, you know, you want to be able to practice when, you know, you're not playing with the band specifically. And so it just seemed like it was a non-starter. I loved writing. Um, I had been writing for years. I started writing as a kid. Um, and I kept all that stuff and I just kept reworking it and reworking it and reworking it until it resembled something that made sense to me, you know, a, as an older, as an elder, like high school student and a young college student. Right. And that's when a lot of the Seisha lyrics were, were written. So I had lyrics. Um, I really was interested in being the singer. 
Um, I had been very much inspired by other bands I was seeing at the time um, that were that would just go for it. And I was really blown away by the way the singer was able to sort of harness the energy of the room and um, regurgitate it back to the room and and get it and get the energy level and the level of messaging to an even higher level than was sort of previously understood. And I was just really fascinated by that ability uh, to do that. And so, you know, though the folks I met, Jamie and 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 uh, the other guys, just were had their instruments and were playing, and and it just made sense, right? It just kind of organically came together in the way that it did, and I ended up the singer. Um, and so and and so that was it. So it wasn't. I didn't have a moment where I was like specifically like I don't want to play the drums anymore. I want to sing. It was more that logistically drumming um became more difficult to to conceive of and therefore i had i i was more like okay well if it can't happen because of logistics then what can i do right how can i be involved in that i couldn't play guitar never touched a bass so it was like all right well if you can't do the drums then then you know there's only one thing that's really left um and so it just kind of organically happened that way gotcha so the band had a huge response this year in 2022 when we came back from a long hiatus. But back in the day, I mean, the Seisha was around for a short time, a couple of years, right? 97 to 99. Right. Talk about the shows then. How were they? How did the band fit into things? I'm fascinated about that world, that world of music, because I only knew a tiny bit about it when I started first going to shows like... When I was going to shows, we had like Joshua Fit for Battle and Neil Perry, and I kind of knew about those bands, and I thought the people were kind of fascinating. They'd have like the straight bang, dyed black haircuts, and they like dress pretty cool. But I was like out in hardcore La La Land, so I didn't I didn't know about anything going on. Tell me about Seisha and the shows back then, and just how everything was. Yeah, so. At that time, there was sort of a segmentation of different styles of of hardcore, right? You had your your tr- sort of traditional New York hardcore that we were all going to see, and and you know that stuff is sort of self, you know that stuff kind of has a life of its own. And then you had this other sort of national uh, scene that was sort of far to me was a lot more interesting, and and at the time, I just think it was because it sounded different. It was harder to get access to the music because it was pre-internet. So it was kind of like one of these things is like you had to get fanzines in order from fanzines, the music, or you had to go to a show where there was like a guy traveling with the band that, you know, had a distro box of like records from potentially wherever that band was from. Right. So if you were seeing a band from the West coast, you know, they might be distroing like other bands from the West Coast on their tour because that's the way music got around at that time. So um, there was this national scene that was really interesting to me because it was harder to see those bands. And I- I'm not even talking like just California. I mean, I just mean like even just Pennsylvania at the time to me was like a world away, right? So, you know, um, and I, br- I bring this up all the time, but bands like Frail, Elements of Need, um, you know, from Pennsylvania, um, in, uh, New Jersey, you had, you know, all these bands that were sort of like the, the, the generation before us of ABC, no Rio, right. The, you know, uh, native nod and Rorschach and, um, 1.6 band. And like, they were sort of also regional heroes that were just a little bit outside and a little bit more angular than like New York hardcore, but they were just, they were just as like, 
you know, they, they were just as critical, you know, born against, of course. Um, they, they were different. They were sort of, they sort of were like, yeah, it's, we're New York hardcore, but we're also this other thing that's like, you know, we're politically motivated. Like we, you know, you know, reaffirming our masculinity is not like the most important thing. Like we're talking about real issues. Um, we're talking about like an emotional response to real issues, right? Like we don't have to have this facade of being tough. Like sometimes shit sucks and it makes us emotional and it makes us sentimental and it makes us wonder like what place we have in the world. And that's not like a terrible thing. And that's not something to be ashamed of. And I was, I was really sort of captivated by the, the, what I felt to be sort of the emotional realness of that and, and sort of the raw nature of that approach to, to punk and that approach to life that, it's not this like, like the only, you don't have to be, it just doesn't have to be anger, right? You, you, you could be afraid of something and like sing about that. You could, you could love something and sing about that. You could sing about something that makes you sad. Like all of these things are still possible and it's still possible to make like amazing, aggressive and emotionally viable music. That's not just angry. Right. And so that was what was really interesting to, to us at the time. And so, the shows that we played tended to veer more toward that latter scene of like, there's an emo, you know, now we call it emo and screamo and all this other horseshit. But at the time it was just like, there's this sort of visceral reaction to the world and none of us can really play together that well. And we may be good musicians in some ways, but when we play, it's more, we're more interested in the sort of emotional resonance of what we're doing than how tight we are or how many mosh pots there are or if there are mosh parts or if it's in the right time signature like that didn't matter right with like the whole notion of diy going all the way to black flag is like it doesn't matter how well you play like you may be good you may not be good but what's more important is that like you're throwing ideas in the world and we latched onto that and that you know that was a subculture of a subculture right so the shows were small right the shows were you know, if we played to 40 or 50 people in New York, where we were from, that was a lot of people. Um, and that, you know, that was a crowd in the ABC No Rio basement. And that was good enough for us. And then when we went on the road, it was, we played in a VFW or we played in a basement to like a puddle of people. Like there were, there were not, there was never a show where we were like, wow, like something is happening here. Like we're part of something bigger than the sum of its parts. It, it, there was never that experience at the time. It was, the shows are really small. It was a really sort of niche group of people. There was no internet. There was no streaming. It was like you either heard about it or you didn't. And most people didn't because let's face it, in our world, selling 107 inches was a huge deal. But in the world at large, that's nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's that, like none of that is, is any, does, makes any sort of ripple in the space time continuum or like across the country. Like you have to go out there and play to people. And, if you're not doing it constantly, people don't know because again, there's no, there's no immediate like exposure to stuff, you know, and that's not saying it was better or worse. It was just different. And so the shows were tiny because getting the word out there was predicated on being on tour constantly. We couldn't do that. We were in school, like releasing records constantly. We couldn't do that because we were, we were in school. So it was just, you know, we did, we, we played to the audience that was there and we were grateful for that audience, but it was not what Seychelles looks like now and what uh, the, the kind of attention it gets now is 
very, very, very different than what happened when Seisha existed. And I think most people realize that, but it cannot be overstated. I mean, we, we, we were not a well-known um, or, or well-liked band. We just, we just weren't. Um, it's just the way it was. I like that uh, you're in many ways, you know, with Seisha and with Hot Cross, you're, you're ahead of your time, but you don't realize it because, and that's why I have great respect for these bands because, you know, there's an emo thing going on at the time. There's a metalcore thing going on at the time. And those two took off in directions, but you and the band are staying true to who you are and what you like. And in, in a lot of ways, you're just way ahead of your time and you don't even realize it yet. I, I really, I appreciate that. I, I, I think we were, I think we were of our time. I, I think that you're being, I think you're generous because I don't know that we were, I don't know that we were so ahead of our time in, in, in so much as we were trying to mimic something and not doing it accurately. Like, and I think that that, and, and maybe that's exactly it, right? Maybe that's what makes it. You're accidentally creating something new. Yeah. We were creating, we were, we didn't realize we were creating something. I think we, we, we weren't necessarily trying exactly to sound exactly like the bands we liked, but we were definitely taking cues from what we heard and, what we liked and there were frameworks that we thought we were working within that I think we just weren't really as accurate as we thought we were. And, and so what came of it is what you hear, right? So you listen to a frail seven inch and I'm like, I'm trying to sound exactly like the dude from frail. Yeah. And I don't. And you know, th- you have to talk to the other guys that wrote the music, but you know, there's, there's this consciousness of like, Oh, there's this, this, you know, there's these, <laughs> these bands from, you know, Bremen, Germany, or these bands from Europe that are that are just mind-bogglingly good, and we want to be like that. Or like Rorschach is like everybody loves Rorschach, and like we're gonna like sort of rip them off in some way, but we're not gonna be obvious about it. And I think it's the I think it's those things that sort of you realize you're not ripping these bands off; you're more just influenced by them, and you're trying to move in a direction that makes sense through the lens of what you love about those bands. So I don't know that we were ahead of our time as much as we were very much of our time because we were absorbing all this stuff that had happened and was happening and sort of regurgitating it in our own way, in a way that we thought sounded a lot like it, but didn't really sound like it at all. And it just sort of became what, what it is through, through that. So um, it's, it's a lot of, I was explaining to my son tonight that we got on this question of like, how do you react to something that you do incorrectly? Like, what, what, like, how do you, re- you react to that? And, you know, we, we had this conversation about how, you know, it's really frustrating when you like intend to do something and it doesn't come out right. And then what, what I've learned through music though, and what I think is the most beautiful thing about music and what I was trying to explain to my son and he's five, so I don't expect him to really understand much of this at all, but I like hearing myself talk obviously. Um, <laughs> but, but what, what's, what's magical and beautiful and important and um, so wonderful um, and otherworldly about music is that it's the happy accidents that push things forward. It's, it's the ability to, it's the fact that the, you can throw the rule book out the window and think that you're following along with something and be so far off from it. And in the process of doing that, create something that's entirely new. And then you realize like you're being influenced by those things. You're not really trying to copy them. You're just heavily influenced by them and you're creating something from them that that is is different to me that's incredible and you know th- those are the type of happy accidents that happen when you're making music that are just like th- that's where the magic happens right and that and you can't 
you don't aim to do those things. You don't intend for those things to happen. They just happen. And the fact that, you know, 25, 27 years on, people think about Seisha in that way, you know, as this like hugely influential ahead of its time entity, you know, my experience of it was just so different. It's fascinating to me that people have that perception. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, to me, that is exactly why music is the greatest gift that human beings have. There is very few other things, very few other art forms that can so viscerally transport you to another time, make you see the world in such a different way instantaneously. Um, and on top of that, have people that you don't know, right, as a music maker and also as an audience member, right, your perception of what you're hearing is just so personal. And you get such a personal experience from it, even though it's broadly experienced amongst tens, hundreds, sometimes millions of people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people that are hearing the same thing and experiencing it in their own way. That is miraculous. I mean, there's nothing more human than that and beautiful than that. And um, to me, it, it's, it's, not, it's not really a, a, a it, it's, it's, it's a music thing. It's not a Seisha thing, right? So I, I just, and, and again, I'm sort of getting off track here. Um, but really my point is that to a lot of people, it sounds ahead of its time. To me, it, to me again, and, and the thing that's incredible about it is that we're experiencing the same sounds, but a different perception of them. To me, it's very much of, of its time um, because I know how, what we were, I know what the thought process was going into it and what we were doing and what we were trying to emulate and what we heard and what we've loved. So, um, so yeah, so, so I, I, I sort of love, um, what, what I love most about being involved in it again is just hearing, um, other people's experiences with it and comparing my own and just being like, son of a bitch, like, this is crazy. Like, like, <laughs> like pe people, people have such different experiences with this. Um, and it's, it's really beautiful and it's something that is, you know, I'm, I'm really fortunate and privileged to be able to hear about. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating because back in the day at this time, I, my, my view is very narrow in many ways, especially with what I'm listening to. You know, I just want to hear like double bass and seeing people beat each other up. And that's really all I'm concerned with. But now 20, you know, now in 2022, like I'm more on the side of bands like Seisha and Hot Cross and City of Caterpillar. Like now I'm seeing all this music and I'm like, wow, where the fuck was I 20 years ago? Oh yeah. I was listening to all the hardcore stuff. So it's, you know, uh, perceptions shift, uh, tastes change. It's all very fascinating. Yeah. I, 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 it's, it's, yeah, it's incredible. It's been a real eye opening experience to be back in this world, but like 20 some odd years removed from it. Um, yeah, it really, it was an adjustment to, un to understand where, where we reside in the landscape now, as opposed to, you know, when we were actually active in, in real time. When did discussions start about, you know, p potential shows or getting back together again. Now I know the collected came out. That was the two disc discography that Jeremy Bone put out on Secret Voice. Yes, right. So what year was that? What year did that come out? Uh, I I want to say that was like what was it like twenty twelve at this twenty fourteen twenty fifteen at this point? I don't remember. It was like the everything pre COVID now is like such a blur. Yeah. <laughs> but it was in the teen. It was in like the twenty teens, and we had. I didn't think that we had talked about getting in a room and practicing just like yeah. not playing shows, but just being like, Hey, let's see if we can like play the songs again. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I guess that would be the point because that was the first time we had really talked any Seisha stuff 
you know, since the end of the band. Um, so, so that was when we had first really sort of broached the idea of being in a room together to play music, which was not something that had happened in, in decades. So, yeah. So that was it. That was really the catalyst, like Jeremy reaching out to me and me reaching out to the band, um, to see what people thought about the discography was really, was really the first, um, time we, we talked about, doing anything productive, even if it was just like putting the rec that record together, it was, it was that those were the first conversations. And there was definitely a component of those that was like, ah, you know, ha ha ha. We're all old now. Wouldn't it be fun to, you know, see if we could like play the songs anymore. And that, that was like, that was it. So it's like the mid 2000 teens yeah. where, where the, the album comes out. When do you actually get into a room together and decide to try to play again? So we, I took a trip to New York to see Adam. Adam was in town and um, Jamie and, and folks. We, I did that sort of just to see them and we did nothing really came of it. We just hung out. We got in a room um, for the first time after COVID. It was not even after COVID, but I guess during, co you know, we're still during COVID. I don't think there's an after COVID, but it, it was during the last couple of years um, in 20, I want to say it was in 2021. We, was it 2021 or was it 2022? Was it, I don't even remember now. I'm, my memory is too bad, <laughs> but it was, it was, it was in the zone of like where the shows actually happened. It was within the last year and a half okay. um, that we got in a room and actually played. And it was too much fanfare on the internet. We, posted one picture of us in the studio and like Brooklyn vegan ran a story about it like eight hours later, which was <laughs> a little mind boggling to us. But, um, but that's what, that's when it really, that's when it really, really, really like started and we hadn't booked any shows yet. We just sort of got in a room and ran through a song and figured out we could still, sounds like we can still play these songs. Were you blown away by the response? Like, I mean, shows aren't even booked yet. And there's like uh there's, much interest. Yeah, it was it was um it was unsettling and intimidating. It I I think I it caught it very much caught me by surprise. Uh and then it sort of took on a life of its it it very quickly sort of took on a life of its own. Um but uh we yeah, we we didn't really know what to make of it and then we we sort of had some conversations and said, you know what? Maybe maybe there's something to it. Maybe we can maybe we can use this to like raise money. Maybe we could use this for like a vehicle for good. I had been a hard no on reunions for, and had made some really sort of cheeky and um, stupid comments about it over the years, um, and was just always asked like, when is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? Are you guys ever going to play? And it was always I was always just very much no. Like it's time to move on. We've all got to like it's a time and a place, right? time and the place has moved and it's a new world that we're like not really a part of. And there's, we, you know, there's no need to make space for like five middle-aged white dudes to like relive their past, like no need <laughs> to do that. And that was before we had really had a conversation about like, well, how can like, we're being very limited in our thinking, right? Like how can we use this as a vehicle to like do good things. Cause there's gotta be some way that we could leverage this to, you know, do something positive. And so as we moved in that direction, well then to me, now there was like possibilities right now. Now we were like really like thinking big and using our imaginations in ways that we hadn't previously. Right. Like before it was like, well, it would be a good idea to maybe do this if, 
because all these people had, didn't see the band and it was more of like this kind of narcissistic endeavor. But once we turned it outwards and realized like this doesn't have to be just a band thing. This could be some some version of like some kind of collective action that we can sort of leverage our time and energy um, to engage in something that's going to sort of do something good. Then all of a sudden it was a palatable idea to me, right? It wasn't this sort of narcissistic nostalgia trip it was okay you all want to come see us then we're all going to put money in a big pot and we're going to donate it but we can't do it without you right like y'all have to show up y'all have to buy the tickets but we're going to do something we're not just going to write a check to ourselves and be out like we're going to do this the right way we're going to take that money we're going to find organizations that are representing some of the most marginalized among us and we're going to try to move the needle for them because they're actually doing the work. And we have this platform where we can raise awareness for them and also raise money. What could be better? As soon as we understood what the possibilities were from that perspective, all of a sudden it was less about a reunion and more about we've got lightning in a bottle. We can use it for something. And so we're going to do that. And one of the side benefits is all these people get to see us. We're making a lot of people's days that's great. We appreciate these people. But we're also going to make sure that folks understand that the real reason we're doing this, the, the real thrust of us doing this is to raise money where we can and do some good in the world. And so that's sort of been what's driven us um, and what drove us to do the shows in November. Um, and I'm, I'm much prouder of a band that has a legacy of like doing positive than just being proud of a band that a lot of people like now and get personal satisfaction from. And that is a great legacy to have. But to me, what I really wanted was like a, a measurable impact that the band could have. And I think we're accomplishing that. And I, I, I'm amazed. I, it, I could not be more, more thrilled about what we were able to accomplish with just those five shows. It was, it was really stunning. And I'm really, really proud of, of what we did and um, what we were able to do for the organizations that we, that we benefited at the time. It was really great. Yeah. I love that. You know, going back to what you were saying earlier, like the ethics that were solidified for you at ABC, no Rio, you know, as people who are in a better position in life, it's up to us to help out the more marginalized. I like that idea. And it sounds like you did that. I like to think that we did. I think we did like what we could, you know, it's yeah. what we're capable of doing. And, and it was, it was awesome. It was amazing. And um, I'm really, I'm really proud of it. And I'm really proud of, of the, the fellas that, that I'm working with. And I love being, I love having them in my life again. It's been, it's been a real blessing. Um, and I'm not a religious person at all, but it's been, it's been a real blessing to have, regular conversations with these guys. I mean, we talk every day now, which is like, to me is such a gift and has been so beneficial to me and has made me feel so lucky. Um, I, I can't, I, I can't say enough good things about what it's like to have these guys in my life again. It's, it's been, it's been really, really incredible and really lovely to see them, how they've grown up and the families that they're, they're raising and the businesses that they've got. And it's just, it's been incredible really, really incredible. So we're, yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're lucky to be in the position we're in for sure. Yeah. I mean, it must be a trip. Did you stay in touch 
over the years, you know, like prior to the record and leading up to these shows and everything? Not really. Not really. I mean, Hot Cross broke up in 07, and I didn't really talk to those guys much at all from 07 to... I mean, I would run into Steve Roach around town because he lived in Philly, and we'd, like, you know, we'd see each other, and we were never on bad terms, but we didn't like hang out. You know, We weren't like tight. Uh, Adam lived in San Diego, and we sort of communicate over the internet, but not, you know, in, not in any sort of regular way. Colin, I hadn't spoken to in forever. I, I mean, Jamie, I didn't speak to, you know, I didn't speak to him from, you know, for, for since hot cross had broken up until we started talking about doing that record. Like I was not in touch with any of these guys on any regular basis, uh, very superficially, if at all, like not at all. So, and even, prior to hot cross breaking up i mean off minor existed but they traveled in very different circles like we didn't tour together we didn't really play together much not because of any particular reason we just didn't so yeah we weren't in regular contact and you know and adam was doing music stuff but it was just very sort of outside what uh, what i was involved in and it, we just sort of all went on separate paths for a lot of years um until we got in touch again because uh Again, Jeremy had reached out about doing Collected, and you know, here we are, well, with a lot of twists and turns. But you know, we are here. Oh yes. So uh, you were touring and performing and releasing records in Hot Cross from 2000 to 2007. Yeah. So I was living in London in 2000, uh, from sort of mid mid summer 2000 until midsummer 2001, and when I got back. Um, I kind of joined Hot Cross right away. I wrote most of the first EP lyrics while I was living overseas. And, you know, I, I was asked to join the band when I got back. And it was very much, um, we're not going to tour. This is just, you know, messing around on the weekends and like just playing. And like, maybe we'll like release a couple records, but we're not going to do anything. And then, of course, you know, none of, you know, that was all bullshit. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, Hot Cross was active from from about 01 until 07 is when we called it. Um, and then I, I haven't been in any band from 07 until the first time I got in a room with Seisha again, just several months ago. I, I didn't play in bands at all during that time. Wow. Did you miss it at all? Did you want to do it? There were certain things about it that I missed. I missed traveling on other people's dime. You know what I mean? Like the opportunities to travel were like incredible. I mean, I didn't care about making money in Hot Cross, but we were lucky enough that on most tours we broke even. We didn't lose money very much, which is like, I mean, on the DIY world, you may as well be like billionaires if you're not. You yeah, it's know, unheard of. It's unheard <laughs> of. So we were really fortunate in that. We got to travel and we did well enough so that like the band sort of sustained itself with with not too many hiccups. So I missed that. I missed the camaraderie of like being creative with other people. But at the same time, I also was just sort of sick of being in, in bands, you know, at that point with only the one year break that I was overseas, it was like station went until 99 and then I moved in mid 2000. And then as soon as I got back, I was in a band again. So th there wasn't really that much downtime between Station and Hot Cross. And then by the time Hot Cross was done, I was kind of like, all right, I need a real break. And then like I was more focused on like, what am I going to do with my life, right? Like, what? where am I going to work? Am I going to have a family? Like, And I just became far more focused on non-music stuff um, and learned a lot of lessons and learned a lot about life and living and 
Um, so by the time I was back in touch with the Seisha guys, I had matured a lot. I was in a much different place in life. I'm in an, even a much different place in life now than I was when we first started talking about collected. Like my life is completely different now. So there was just a lot going on where I didn't personally feel that being in a band was going to be particularly fulfilling to me. And so I just took a pause and got into other stuff and stayed creative, but just wasn't sort of creative in like the punk hardcore DIY worlds, just create, found other ways to be creative that were more autonomous, that didn't rely on a band that, you know, were, I was making creative decisions that felt good to me that weren't, you know, it wasn't a, you know, I, I sort of, I sort of liked being a dictator <laughs> and not, you know, having to engage in some democratic process where I had to share creative decision making with other people. And and I really started to enjoy that creative autonomy and just doing different things that were fulfilling to me. And so that's what I did. And so I didn't really feel compelled to be in a band again. And until the Sasha stuff happened, I, I still didn't. I mean, honestly, like, it's not like, it's not like now after those shows, I'm like, shit, why have I been wasting all this time not being in bands? Like I need to be like in a new band writing new music. Like right now I missed it. I don't feel that way right now. I feel really fulfilled by what, you know, Seisha was able to do. Um, and that, that's been good. And, you know, the muscle memory was there. I, my voice actually made it through all these shows, um, which was shocking, but, but, you know, pleasantly so. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it, I'm where I'm at right now, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't really miss the band, the band world that much. Like the whole, like, when are we going to record? Like, we got to plan a tour. Like, do we want to play show? Like the administrative aspects of it and the dread of being engaged in those again <laughs> was it's sort of like, it was that sort of superseded any sort of desire to be in a creative sort of collective, um, situation uh that would sort of bear fruit in some way i wasn't i it just was it just didn't feel fulfilling and so i didn't do it yeah i i feel you on that you know it's working with other people for me can be very difficult because i have a very precise vision i like to attain i guess i should say right uh so the whole democratic process and all that can be very difficult especially when i'm not on the same page with someone but you know with this podcast i just do whatever i want yeah. And uh that's a great thing and you I guess you did that too like you were DJing and making mixes and everything so yeah. I mean you don't you don't really need to work with other people when you're doing that, right? No, there so it's interesting like I get a lot of questions about that because it seems like so sort of polar opposite to you know what we think about when we think of you know DIY bands and punk bands and all that kind of stuff and what I got out of dance music was this same sort of collective support system and collective DIY spirit that really captivated me in punk and hardcore. Um, yep. I was working by myself, but at the same time, it was easy to find a collective of artists and people that had similar interests that are doing similar things in a very sort of DIY framework. I work very closely here with a collective called Great Circles that um, is an electronic music collective, I think for lack of a better way to describe it. I don't, I don't think it, it specifically needs to be that, but the, most of the people that work within this collective work in sort of electronic mediums, right? They're doing tape loop stuff. They're doing synthesizer stuff. They're working with samplers. Um, they're kind of tinkering, right? And they're tinkering, um, in a way that's both fulfilling to them and sort of fulfilling in a way to the collective, because I feel like we, it's, it's a mutually inspiring project. Right. And so finding something like that to me made 
sort of the dance music world and electronic music a lot more viable and interesting to me because what I didn't understand about it previously was that this sort of collective DIY framework exists and is very healthy um, within certain communities in, in, in the dance music world. And Philadelphia is very lucky to have a really supportive community of people that don't necessarily have the same artistic interests all the time, but have the same appreciation and respect for other music makers and other people that put on events and try to promote music. And so Philly being as musical a town as it is um, across genres, I mean, you can find anything here and you can find some of the best of the best working in different mediums and genres in Philly. And so getting involved in in sort of dance music and electronic music here um, and experimental music and all that kind of stuff um, was really, was really easy for me because again, um, there was a collective support system here that um, I found very much akin to what I liked most about punk and hardcore when I was m- the most involved in, in, in that. So um, that is sort of why I kind of glommed onto it. And just being a music nerd, there's just so much to learn and understand and appreciate. And there are the same sort of, there's the same sort of richness of tradition um, in that world that exists in, in the punk world. And it's not so easy to see the through lines until you're involved in the community. And then you more understand this idea of collectivism and art for art's sake and making things that are viable and using those things to sort of do good in the world. Um, and uh, work in sort of these mutual aid environments, both from an artistic and sort of a social perspective, right? There's there's benefits that go on. There's um, a, in, in, the, in our particular collective, there's a big emphasis on sort of ex- inclusivity um, and not just being cultural tourists in, in, in making sure that there's representation and understanding and we do things respectfully. Like to me, these are all punk ideals. These are all things that resonate across different DIY communities. And so finding that in something that was aesthetically just so different than what I was used to, but but still had this common through line to the things that I found most valuable about punk um, and the DIY world and the DIY punk world. You know, finding those through lines in something that is so sort of superficially different was really exciting, and that's that's sort of how that took off. But but I really credit you know the community of artists that I've met in Philadelphia and that world and and this little sort of community um that that I exist in this ecosystem is just it's so rewarding and I've learned so much and it's so inspiring um you know people are just always making stuff and you can't be in a better environment than than just being around people making stuff no matter what it is and so that was really what sort of captivated me it was beyond just like this is a style that's interesting to me it's more like this is a style that's interesting to me, but there's this entire world, this entire community of like people that sort of know each other in this context and inspire each other. Um, um, and, and I found that really beautiful. And so I'm, I'm really lucky to have found it and, and be involved in it in the way that I am. And again, it, it's very, to me, it's not any different than what I got out of the punk world. It's just a different approach. And I, I just find that incredibly exciting. And it just, to me, it just sort of um, really doubles down on the idea that you know creative communities are are vital. They're, they're necessary for humans to to be humans. We we need we need these sort of uh, we need these uh, um, these opportunities to 
make things and share things and share ideas. Um, it, it really what makes us human. And the fact that music is the anchor, I mean, what could be better, right? And so to me, it was a really natural sort of phase to, to get involved in. And, and I'm really excited to still be involved in it while you know, this other, this, this Seisha stuff has happened. Um, you know, a lot of my friends in that world got to never got to experience me in the, the DIY punk world. And they all came to the Philly show and, the, and they were like really blown away by it and, and really, That's awesome. and really loved it. And some of them were familiar with that world, but, but they had never seen me operating in that world. And so yeah. to have them there to me was like such a gift to have these two worlds colliding was like, who could be luckier, right? Uh, it was just incredibly fulfilling to me. So, so I know I don't know. I'm blabbering on and on here. You probably <laughs> want to move on, but but this is to me this is such a significant part of what's what started with hardcore and started with Seisha and sort of evolved into just an understanding of the need for community in in an artistic sense, um, the need to have people be able to give you feedback in real time and support you and teach you things. There's nothing better. There's nothing more valuable than that. I'm a hundred percent with you on that. That's, you know, uh, becoming more adult in recent years and finding out what really makes me tick and what I like the different artistic communities I've been involved with music, different bands, theater, like all the things I've been involved with is it's just great communities, great people. And I've realized I really like, creating whatever it is and it sounds like you too like uh i hear what you're saying about uh the electronic music world now i i i never performed in that world or anything like that but back in the day i did go to a lot of the shows i liked i was chasing the drugs more than the music and the shows at the time but i met a lot of really great people in that community and a lot of the same ideals you do find from from one community to the next. Yeah, it's inspiring. You know, whatever, yeah. whatever sort of draws you there, when you realize that there are these like just sort of basic through lines, it's it's really exciting, you know, and you don't you don't expect to find those. So let's talk about what we've got coming up. Now, is there any more plans for more Seisha music or shows or have we reconnected with Hot Cross? Has enough time gone by? Is there any desire for that? <laughs> Lay um, it on us, Billy. What's going on? Uh, yeah, so um, Seisha has some stuff in the works for 2023, um, which we will, we will, and I don't know when this is due to air. People may already know by the time it airs, but so people probably already know, but we, we do have some stuff coming up and it's exciting. We'll be in, we'll be in California at the end of April. We're doing a few shows out there. Uh, we're working with a charity. I don't want to say the charity just yet because it'll it'll be settled. I'm sure by the time we announce. But uh, we found a charity to benefit with those shows um, already, um, and so that's sort of the next big thing. Um, and that that will be at the end of the last weekend in April. Will be will be out there. Um, our guitar player Adam, who I mentioned before, who I grew up with. Uh, lives in San Diego and has lived there for a while now. And so he was able to do a lot of the legwork. Um, Adam does a lot of the legwork anyway. Adam is like on top of everything. Um, I'm grateful for him. Uh, I don't know how he has enough hours in the day, but he figures it out. Nonetheless, he, uh, so we'll be, we'll be in, in Southern California and Berkeley um, in, in the end of April, really looking forward to that. Um, and then we'll just sort of see where we where it where we can take where this will take us. But 
Um, what's most important to us is that we can leverage these shows to raise money for people doing really great local work. And so as we raised money for global action for trans equality in New York City, and we raised money for the Abortion Liberation Fund of Pennsylvania through our Philly show, we'll, 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 be, we'll be working with a, a California-based charity to um, you know, raise some money for, for, for important things that are happening on the ground for, for those communities. So um, what a privilege, right? What, a, what, a, what an exciting privilege to be able to do something like that. So that's what's next. And then, but from then, we're sort of taking it slow, and and we'll see what we'll see what the future brings. But um, yeah, the November is not a is not a one and done. You know, where there's opportunities for us to do some good, we're we're going to try to find those and, and do some good. And so, California is next on our on our list. Awesome, awesome. I lo- I'm looking forward to that. I mean, uh, you're doing great work with the band, and you're doing great work with the band, and uh, I respect that. It's awesome. Thank you. Thanks. I really appreciate it. And thanks for the opportunity to talk to you today. I hope I, I blabbered a lot. I hope I, I hope I stayed on, <laughs> I hope I stayed on task for you. Billy, you did all the work for me and I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to help. Happy to help. Yeah. But I just want to say thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Uh, I really like the music that you've given the world and uh, I'm looking forward to more. So just once again, thank you, Billy. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And there you have it, Billy Werner. Great conversation. You know, the part of that conversation I keep thinking about is when I told Billy that Seisha was ahead of their time, and he said it was of the time and went into all of the reasons why, and that made sense. I guess to me it was ahead of its time because I'm thinking about myself as a 16-year-old when all of that was going on, Seisha and the music they were playing and the things they were into. And when I think of that from the perspective of a 16-year-old, me, a 16-year-old, it it seems very advanced to me. In that sense, it's ahead of its time to me. But what he said makes sense. And they're a great band. Seisha, a great band. Hot Cross, a great band. And Billy had a lot of really interesting things to say. I think it's great that he's using the band as a vehicle to help others. You know, going back to those values that he learned at ABC No Rio. Shout out to ABC No Rio. I'm glad I got to play there before that place disappeared. I was in a band called Zombie Fight for maybe a year, a year and a half in New York City, and we did play there one time. The video is actually on YouTube somewhere, so I'm very happy that I got to play that legendary venue before they tore it down. Well, I don't know what's there now, condos or a store, who knows. Excellent conversation with Billy. Looking forward to more from Seisha. And it sounds like there's more coming. So I'm excited. So let's check in. How are we doing? You know, I've been putting off recording the rest of this episode all weekend because there's a lot of difficult things to talk about, but I just have to go ahead and do it. Okay, number one, my birthday was this weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I turned 41 years old. If you can believe that. And I wasn't going to do anything, but I ended up spur of the moment going out to eat with some friends Friday night, so that was nice. And 
I bought myself a cake, which I'll eat tonight, Sunday. That's going to be good. I bought myself a PlayStation 5 and Elden Ring. And I've never played a FromSoft game. I've never played Elden Ring. So I'm looking forward to jumping into that. It's going to be a while before I can get to it because there's a lot going on. But it was a great weekend spent with friends and working on things that I love. So I'm very happy about that. But historically, there's always been a shadow cast over my birthday because back in 1997, 1998, one of those, my older brother died. He was diabetic. He had a seizure in the house. We didn't know he was home. I found him. It really cast a shadow over my family for a long time. There was a lot of fallout from that and a lot of things to deal with for all of us. And it happened the day before my birthday. So historically, my birthday is a tough time because I'm always thinking about his death as well. And it depends on the year. Sometimes I care. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I want to do something for my birthday. Sometimes I don't. But this year, things ended up happening. I didn't make too big a deal out of it. And the school he used to go to, they have a memorial in his name and they planted a tree for him a long time ago. So my mom sent me an article about that. And usually I just ignore it and pretend nothing is happening. But, you know, I just read the article and responded and said, rest in peace. So it's, I think it's good to acknowledge him and this day and everything that happened because that's probably the healthier thing to do. So happy birthday to me, 41 years old. Things are going great. I'm feeling good. There's a lot of good stuff going on. So I'm grateful for that. Uh, but in the end of the show here, I I do want to recognize the passing of my friend TJ DeBloy. This is another tough conversation to have. And another reason I've been delaying recording this last piece of the show. You know, two memorials in two weeks. This is tough. And I don't know what happened to TJ yet. I don't know exactly what happened. There's a lot of things I want to say. There's directions I want to go in, but I don't want to I don't want to speculate. So I'm just going to say this. He was a massive talent. He was the best drummer in Bucks County, and I always hoped that he would extend beyond that and have a career in music. I think that's what he wanted the most. He was fantastic. He was the first drummer of A Life Once Lost, and I hung out with those guys a lot in those early days. And I remember A Life Once Lost played in my parents' house. I had a show at my parents' house on a Sunday afternoon. A Life Once Lost opened the show, and I just remember my mom and my dad and their friends, they were at the gig, and they were so impressed with TJ's drumming. They were watching him. They're like, who is this kid? They were calling him the little drummer boy. <laughs> he was in high school at the time, but he, he looked really young. He looked really young. I had the same thing going on in high school, but everyone was just so impressed with how great of a drummer he was. And he was. He went on to do a lot of great things. He was in Halfway to Holland after A Life Once Lost. He was in Like Lions after that. He was in the Traded series, another Philadelphia area band. You can find all of these bands on YouTube, by the way. They're great. I recommend you check them out and hear TJ's work. I considered him a friend. I reconnected with him 
once this podcast got rolling, similar to Ian, and I knew once this podcast started that I was going to have TJ on as a guest, because if you listen to his episode, I tell a story about how we were at a local bar in Bucks County, and I was trying to get off drugs. I didn't know he was on drugs, and he just talked about his life. He talked about the bands he was in and just everything that he did, and it was captivating stuff. So when the podcast started, I knew I was going to have him as a guest so that he could tell those stories. And I did. So I encourage everyone to go back and listen to episode 10 of this show with TJ. You know, I'm happy there's some documentation of his life and his work. I was talking to Tommy over the weekend. He said there's a memorial Facebook page out there for him. People are posting memories and stuff associated with TJ. I don't know where the page is. I don't have a link or anything. I don't really go on Facebook that much, but Try to find that if you can. There's the new scene, episode 10 with TJ. You can hear his bands on YouTube or Spotify. If you're listening to early A Life Once Lost stuff, I'm going to miss him. I'm going to miss him, and I'm really sad he's gone. And uh, I don't know I don't know what else to say. I'm a little messed up over it. You know, two memorials in two weeks. So that's it. Rest in peace, TJ DeBloy. And we're going to end the show with Cheap Seats by Like Lions, featuring TJ the Bloy on drums. You can find this song on YouTube if you want to hear it again. So that's it for this week. We're back next week with a new episode and a new guest. So thanks everybody for listening, and until next time.